journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hina Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Today I'm joined by Sheikh Faraz Rabani, the founder of Seekers Guidance Global Islamic Seminary. He gives a great contemporary history lesson into Islamic scholarship in North America today and how a group of University of Toronto MSA students were inspired to go and acquire sacred knowledge in the late 1990s. He traveled with his wife, Istada Shreen Ahmed, to Syria, Jordan, and Pakistan to learn from some of the most renowned scholars of our time. He then returned to Canada to begin Seekers, where students of all levels, like myself, have been able to access Islamic knowledge for free. His story is particularly inspiring for me because I too went to the University of Toronto and was involved with the MSA. Listen as Sheikh Faraz shares important insights for a new generation of Seekers. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah and jazakallah khair for inviting me to this uh, wonderful uh, podcast and initiative. I grew up like a global nomad, really. My father was in international finance, so we, like, I actually get the the, the the life journey wrong. So growing up, we were we came to Canada when I was a year and a half old, but we were also in the Emirates and London, and then after that, we were in Cairo and back in London and then in Spain. I did most of my high school in Spain, and we we're moving, you know, moving around considerably. Um, I till recently I'd never lived in one place more than six and a half years in one go. Um, so it was a bit unique because we're always sort of on the move in transition. So as a family, we're very you know we're quite tight knit in that sense. Um, there was a sense of the importance of religion. I wouldn't say necessarily the religious family in the um, we we weren't in most of the places we were we were not really closely connected with a religious community, but uh, my parents instilled a sense of the importance of religion and you know core religious practices and so on. Um, and that was, so religion was, was a positive part of, of, of our upbringing, um, but cer- certainly not central at that time to my identity. But that led later when I got to university to a bit of a crisis that who exactly am I? And that was a big, big question because we moved back to Canada in the final year of high school. So in Spain, we were at this private school. They're like all these rich kids. And you know, we're sort of like, it was like, a, it was a, you know, I look back at it. It's like everything I hate about elitism and so on. Uh, but there are you know, a lot of friends in, in those circles. Um, but we moved to Canada and I was in a depressing high school. And really depressing because our, our class was the final year in which the high school ran as a high school. It became an adult learning center. Our graduating class at a high school here in the, in the Great Toronto area was five students. And then having only been in Canada for a year, we weren't, weren't yet connected to community either. So it's a big question. 
that who the heck am I? So I toyed with different aspects of my identity, and Alhamdulillah, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala connected me with you know with good company, um, friends. There's someone actually who now ended up being a big influence in my life at a physical level as well because he did a, a number of eye surgeries on me. Um, but he was a major spiritual influence because he just sort of, I was trying to get involved with the Pakistani Student Association, but they weren't serious. I wanted something that was meaningful. All they seemed was sort of the, the party students association. It didn't seem like that that's the point of life. Um, so Dr. Uh, Iqbal Aik Ahmed, he sort of said, why don't you come and do da'wah on Young Street? I didn't know what da'wah meant actually, uh, but... Um, but that, and then reading and observing a number of different people, um, the, 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 you know, the, the answer to who am I and what matters became much more clear that I, you know, that my primary identity is I'm a believer, and but that has implications, and that troubled me a lot. That okay, so what does that mean practically in my life? And one of the key things related to that is a, is a is a question that okay, if I am a believer. And, you know, I believe in Islam, then I need to know more about it. And that was a bit of a frustrating journey because at, at that time, this is the early 90s, there was not a lot of access to re religious learning in the community. So we ourselves on campus, you know, we started, you know, connecting with different teachers and so on. And there's some, there were some very good influences um, related to that, uh, alhamdulillah. Uh, on campus itself at the University of Toronto, um, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick was on campus. And actually, my first year at university, I was a bit of a stalker because the year before I was at university, uh, the, my first year at university, the MSA was thoroughly unwelcoming. Like, it's hard to be that unwelcoming. Every time I went to the musalla on campus, I'd get corrected about something or the other. You didn't pray with your feet open. You didn't point. You didn't do this. And it was like, it was quite scary, and you know, I'd go stand in a group, and there people are talking, and they'd be talking using words I had no clue about. I mean, I was interested in being part of the conversation, but throwing around like honestly, I didn't know what they kept talking about Bukhari and Muslim. I was thinking that, you know, what what in the world is that? And they're talk, throwing big words around, and you know, terminology and sahih and da'if and God knows what they're talking about. I was really confused. Very intimidating. One, because of their harshness and also just the exclusionary language. But we had Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick on campus. I never actually talked to him. But I just observed this man. He'd walk like an ambassador for the religion. He, he And he dressed better than anyone on campus, which is pretty impressive. And just the way he dealt with people. He looked like a... Like a an ambassador for the Prophet I was like, wow. I just keep observing him. And I sort of found out, who is this man? And I never, I didn't talk to him for months, but it's just very impressive from a distance. And in the first year as well, I sometimes when I felt a little bit of energy, I walked down south of the University of Toronto campus. Isna used to have um, in their, you know, an office there. And they used to have the five prayers. And they're a lot more friendly and he used to go there for Friday prayer because Friday prayers on campus was quite scary because this felt like a lot of these scary people all gathered together. So I used to go there and Bifadlillah Ta'ala, one of the people who had a big impression, not just from his teachings, but again by his conduct was 
um, was uh, Imam Shabir Ali, Dr. Shabir Ali, because his khutbah has made sense. I could tell there's some point to the khutbah. There's a beneficial message. I felt it really resonated. And then he was exceptionally welcoming afterwards. So first year, I was on campus. I met a few people, um, but it was a bit of a... The, the Muslim Student Association, sadly, it was a very jarring experience. But then um, uh, Dr. Dr. Iqbal Ahmed and others led sort of like a an uprising, a positive uprising. And there was a a new executive for the MSA and a number of people joined but by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the although the MSA at the University of Toronto is one of the oldest MSAs that year they almost quadrupled the 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 mailing list of the students the, you know, the contact list we call it wasn't mailing list the contact list of the students who are members of the MSA so they really went on a big outreach drive there's a lot of big programs to bring people together and so on um, so that, um, so my second year at university, I actively got involved in the in the MSA, and there there was a number of people who became lifelong friends, deep influences, and so on. Bifadlillahi um, Taala, and that the role of the MSA there was very positive, especially in terms of good company. Good company. I had wanted to go overseas to study, etc., but with the MSA being active. We connected further with scholars like Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick, other scholars in the community, Sheikh Abdul, Sheikh Faisal, uh, Abdul Razak, um, other Sheikh Muhammad Zahid, Abu Ghudda, etc. So I wanted to just abandon my studies and go overseas. At that time, unfortunately, we were surrounded by these various scholars that we were getting to know. Everybody would say the same thing. And one of the things my parents instilled was this idea of you know, consulting with your elders and so on. That's always annoying, but one of the things, annoying, but you just kind of do it because you're brought up that way. They'd all say, finish your studies. Oh, go ask Sheikh Faisal, he'd say, finish your studies. That's what I did. I found it beneficial. Oh, go ask somebody else. They'd say the same thing. But also the good company it facilitated, and some, some of them being lifelong friendships, and many of these people we've worked together, such as um, my, my, my dear friend Abdurrahman Malik, whom we've it was for a long time part of the Seekers team as well. And we've collaborated on many, many different projects and have a shared love for coffee now. Um, so that that was really a transformative experience, right? But we were still searching because at that time, what we were doing, we're, we're very active MSA. Um, we're a bit, to be honest, we're a bit of an arrogant MSA because we're also very active at the, we gathered the, the Toronto MSAs together. We had something called the Toronto MSAs United, TMU. We also had an MSA Ontario. And we used to always attend MSA National at that time, still operated in Canada as well. It's kind of shameful, actually. We don't have a, a national body for MSAs in Canada. It's, it's a bit shameful. If anyone hears this, it should irk your conscience. It's Uncle Rabani speaking. Um, but we had an MSA for, for Ontario, and we did leadership training and so on. We're also very involved at the national with MSA National, although the MSA at the University of Toronto never affiliated with MSA National. But we're always there, always causing a lot of trouble, always telling people what they should be doing because our MSA was quite active. Um, but we never joined MSA National; we refused to pay, and on principle because we didn't feel MSA National was accountable um, and that there wasn't transparency, so we never joined. But it said we have a right to make noise. Um, and part, and that's where I actually got to know my wife too. She was also very active, and she's also always been a 
troublemaker in the good. Um, we also had the, the Muslim Voice as, an, as a newspaper that we got involved in, which is still running. Um, we also, at that time, we used to, at the peak of it, we were printing 10, 12,000 copies, distributing across the city. We also had 25 MSAs that we used to send it out to. Um, so this kept us really busy, and we had some doses of learning, usually through lectures and through different classes here and there, but it was deeply unsatisfying because we got really involved in a lot of activism, but there was a, a real emptiness. We used to have these long, long conversations about what's the, what's the meaning of all of this. And um, we're, we're at, at a loss. Like the, the activists, especially a few years in, felt very hollow. That we're doing all this stuff, but we didn't feel that it was improving us as individuals, improving our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, etc. Um, and we didn't see, okay, what? how does this uplift our community, really? Just scattered talks, how does that do anything for anybody? We went on all kinds of journeys. Uh, for a while, a few of us experimented with being sort of ultra-conservative, and we became like sort of um, you know, a bit literalistic and so on. We got in trouble with Sheikh Abdullah Hakim quick because we, for a while, became ultra-conservative. Of all people, Abdurrahman and I started like if there's sisters walking down St. George Street, we would actually just cross over the road, stand with our backs until we thought they'd moved, and then cross back over. And people were freaked out. We're at the Robarts Library, if they're coming around the corner, we'd go stand behind the pillar and Sheikh Abdullah Hakim reached out to us and said, come to my office. And he said, look, you're scaring the women. Please don't behave in strange ways. And he was very loving about it and gave us some, some guidelines right, that it's good to be restrained in your interaction and dignified. But 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 that was a, a, but a good lesson. But we're really looking for something substantial, something deep. You've talked before about studying with Sheikh Talal. Um, is this when you met him? We found this man named Ahmed Talal Ahdab over several years. Initially, we heard that there was this book called Reliance of the Traveler. And we heard about it online. And of course, that time online, this is pre-internet still. But there's these uh, bitnet listservs, sort of like mailing lists that were on. And we saw this announcement for a book. So being activists, we said, who buys one book? We got like 25, 30 copies. We looked at it, and one of one of us, being lit, literally inclined, looked at it and said, oh, this doesn't reference the Hadith. And oh my God, there's this, these strange things in it. So we bought copies, and we interacted with this man who was very impressive. But we didn't know anything about him, just some random bookseller, Ahmad Talal Ahdab. So we gave the books back. Then we placed another order, but we were warned by somebody, so we canceled it. But then we started noticing this man in the community, because he'd show up at different community programs and so on, and... There's something different about him. He's very refined, very understated, and very reserved. Very so it's very confusing. And of course, I admit, I've known Sheikh Talal now for 25 years or more. I still don't know him. Right? He's this great mystery. But in the most beautiful of ways, may Allah protect him. So we came to, to know him a little bit. But through this point of connection, we started hearing about this idea of traditional Islam, etc., there's a website online called masood.co.uk. We started reading these articles. We found out about Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, this young, dynamic scholar. 
So actually, the first time he came to Canada for public programs was through the MSA at the University of Toronto. We, we had him at the Medical Sciences Library. Of course, we had no clue what he was talking about because at that time he used to like speak. Like, like it was like a shower of brilliance. But to this day, I, don't, I still don't, I can't figure out what exactly the point of the talk was. And he gave a couple of talks but they're deeply influential. But the underlying theme of Sheikh Hamza in those times was that is about learn, act on your knowledge, and the health of a community is on the basis of knowledge. And there's a lot of other things throughout, and there's which which appeal to our activist energy at that time. Throw smash your TVs or throw them out of the balcony, and you know, it's talking about the Dajjalic system and all these kinds of things. It's like. Of course, we like the world too much to throw anything out, but it it was it was very exciting. And then we heard about other scholars through this, especially through Masood Khan's website. Years later, I actually met Masood Khan in person uh, in, in in England, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, and others. Um, so we started thinking that there's something special there, but we're still very hesitant because we're activists. We're burnt out activists, but. So we're still on this activism thing, but this is sort of mulling, brewing for for a while. So just to interrupt, yeah. um, I mean, these names that we that you're mentioning that are so um, popular in Muslim households now were were they um, established back then? Were they just starting not really? Out? No, the Sheikh, Sheikh Hamza at that time, you know, the national organizations were very wary about him because at one level he was very dynamic, very charismatic. But he seemed extremely radical in many of his views. Don't send your kids to school, homeschool, no TV. But he made intelligent arguments. He was not speaking from some kind of rigid, just sort of, you know, but appealing to people's intellect. And it really made sense about the failings of the educational system, modern entertainment, this, that, the other, many of his... But all of it that we need to reconnect to the richness of this tradition. So he wasn't really known. Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, certainly in North America, nobody knew him. But it was sort of seeping in. Sheikh Nuh Keller, we were all like, who is this man? But And this is before, there's no internet. So somebody got a tape. And it was, and he's soft-spoken anyways. So it's hard to listen to. We actually had to borrow someone's headphones, put it in like a Sony Walkman and sort of press hard to really hear it. But it was, it was at a different level. So it's exciting, but we're busy doing all this activism, big lecture, fill convocation hall with the mayor of Sarajevo, etc. But we're feeling really empty. But then, this man, Sheikh Talal we keep running into him and getting more and more into Who is this guy? We couldn't figure it out. But then we found out that there's this great book, and we've been hearing about it because we're, we've got this contact with tradition and so on. There's this great book about the Prophet called the Shifa, Qadi Iyad. So I was translated by a female scholar. Oh my God, that's so exciting. And so, uh, translated by Aisha Buley. So where can we find it? And we found out, oh my God. Brother Ahmed Talal has it. So one of uh, one of us, well, one of my friends, went to visit Sheikh Ahmed Talal. And it turns out, he, his background was a journal, journalism student at that time, or an aspiring journalist. So he went to see Brother Ahmed Talal. And he started talking about the Shifa. 
And being a journalist, he probed more and turned, and we got excited about this idea of ijazah. So Sheikh Talal, being very excited about the book, started talking a lot about the book. So the way journalists do, he sort of punted a question. He said, have you studied this book? He wouldn't answer the question. He said, do you have ijazah in it? He was silent. So he said, well, silence must mean he probably does. So he kept probing and he, at, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you can't lie. So he admitted that, yes, he did have ijazah in this book, the Shifa of Qadi Ayyad. So the guy, may Allah bless him, and he's got major health issues now. He said, if this man has ijazah in a book, in a detailed book about the Prophet, he must have ijazahs in other things. So he's also selling a copy of the Risal al-Qushayriya, the book in Sufism. I said, have ijazah in this book. Again, he was quiet, etc., but journalists drew it out of him, and he had ijazah in the Risal al-Qushayriya. So, oh my God. He got very excited, contacted us all, the guys... Let's, you know, we, we met and like, we got to study with him. So he said, okay, we're going to read the Risal al-Qushayriya with Sheikh Ahmad Talal. With Brother Ahmad Talal. So we got very excited, got a group of us together who all had these questions. And we contacted someone we'd gotten to know in our state of burning out activists. Brother Nazim Baksh at CBC. Young, dynamic, mercurial journalist. You know, 12 years older than us, but we started visiting him at CBC, getting advice, and he'd be a bit of an uncle to us in that he'd tell us off all the time. So he said, Brother Nazim, and it was actually from a, from a, like from, from a payphone on St. George Street, I think it was in front of Sydney Smith building, called him, said, we're starting a halakha with Brother Ahmad Talal on the Risal al-Qushayriya, would you like to join and he got mad at us. And he was raising his voice so much that Abdurrahman just put the phone sideways and both of us could hear it. He says, you brothers want to study about going to Allah when you don't even know about istinja, which is like cleaning your private parts. Fear Allah. And then this guy needs and he was mad at us. Like, okay, so what do you want? And he just went on and on and on about how we don't know anything about Islamic knowledge. But the good thing was... was that he'd get mad at us, but he'd always give us, he'd be a mentor to us. Just a, a cranky and cantankerous mentor. And in many ways he still is. We still consult him about things. He said, come to CBC. We're really scared. because He just mad at us for a long time. I had to put in several coins. We go down and he said, look, Islam is based on Iman, Islam, Ihsan. Do you know about the Hadith Jibreel? So what Hadith Jibreel? So how did you say it? Got, got mad at us about that too. He said, study some fiqh. Study your basic beliefs. Study how to worship Allah. And study something about spirituality. But begin with something small. And he explained some of this. Told us to read Sayyid Naqib al-Attas. That's one of the best advices I got in my life. So we're coming to know these things. So we started a halaqa with Sheikh Talal in, in, big, in early 19, in around 1995. And that's how we got to know uh, Sheikh Talal at that time and the more we inquired about him the more we realized that this is something really unique how come people don't know about him in Toronto and how learned he was one from what we found out about him he'd never say anything but then we attended his classes and we'd attended classes with different people attended lectures but this was something deeply because we saw the precision the clarity of thought the depth the nuance of you know it, it was it was it was deeply deeply influential um 
And for me personally, it reinforced the desire because that I'd always sort of broadly wanted to go and study. But then I'd, where I wanted to go and study was secondary. There's many destinations that came up and disappeared. But said, I want to study sort of where he studied. So became, well, either Syria or, or somewhere thereabouts. He's Lebanese, but, um, but many of his teachers were Syrian. So that really stirred that interest because we're, we're interested in knowledge, but it's sort of like, where do you go? Uh, you know, for me personally, that, that came up. Then that same year, earlier in the year, we found out about this program taking place in the UK called the Rihla. And a number of people went on it from our group, particularly my friend Abdul Rahman. I couldn't go. Partly, I was broke. Number two, my dad thought this was all crazy. Number three, uh, I had other things on my mind as well. Um, I was busy trying to get married, which is a, a crazy idea at that time. But um, So I, I couldn't go. But Abdurrahman went, came back, and he sort of retold us. It, we, I think, spent more time listening to Abdurrahman talk about the Rihla that took place in Nottingham than he attended classes at the Rihla. So we got very intrigued. And then we found out that there's a Dean intensive taking place at the end of the year. So we'd started a class by then with Sheikh Talal, that there's a Dean intensive taking place in, in Connecticut, the U.S. Now we're, to- we're broke students, like told, and all of us avoid, because we, we'd hardly ever be home, because we sort of spend all our time at, at the library, but of course never actually studying. So we generally avoided taking money from our parents, from our parents, just to keep that semblance of independence. So this program taking place, but we're broke. And then the biggest cost was how do we get there? So Ustad Nazim, may Allah SWT bless him, he had, he, he, um, that, that year he gave us his car to go to this program. Of course, he had only one condition. Abdurrahman never, I don't think he drives yet. So Abdurrahman couldn't drive. I did have a license. He had said, I'll give you my car on one condition, which is for us cannot drive even in the worst case scenario. Even if you have an emergency, call 911, but he can't drive my car. I said, why? Have you ever seen me drive? I don't need to see you drive. So so we, four of us uh, went forth, um, you know, and subhanAllah, all four, one who probably wouldn't want to be mentioned, all four of us have been lifelong Islamically involved in different ways, right? One of the one actually went overseas and studied, doing his own thing related to Islamic studies. Um, Abdurrahman Malik's been involved in, you know, global Islamic projects for since then. Um, and myself and and Sheikh Zahir, neither of us was Sheikh back then. You know, we went overseas to study. And that was that was a life transforming program because there we got to interact very closely with Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. And with Sheikh Abdullah Al-Qadi, the three of them were there in Connecticut. And that made it just, for me personally, very clear what I needed to do. Is I need to go overseas and study. And I want to need to go where? This kind of understanding of deen, because of its clarity, because of its connectedness to our, our tradition, because of its balance. Because of, There's many, many things that really appealed to me regarding it. Um, and we came back and we continued the classes with Sheikh Talal. 
And from, from then, it was very clear that at that Dean Intensive, one of the most important things in my life and my going overseas was, I had decided that fall that, that I, I need to get married to. It's this person called Shireen Ahmed. But of course, it was totally far-fetched because I was broke. My parents didn't have much. Her parents were wealthy. Um, I had crazy life plans to go overseas. I was going to be broke for life. So I was convinced that the only way I was going to get married was in, go to some rural village, find some lady who'd been married five times, had 15 children, was like 45 years old. At that time, it was like 20, 21, um, with like four teeth left, etc. So I made it very dramatic, but alhamdulillah, I was trying to get married. And there's, there's a whole co- cohort of people at that time um, who had similar concerns. And I learned this beautiful dua, which may be useful for single people, because it worked for... I learned this beautiful dua from Azhar Usman, the comedian. We, we knew each other from activist circles. The dua was in Urdu. But desperate people take desperate measures. It says, Allahumma kab aayenge dina jab ek takiye pe do siran. Oh Allah, when will the days come when on one pillow they lie two heads? So both Azhar and I were making this dua, like, said, don't forget the dua. And um, so alhamdulillah... Um, that that was and my wife had similar concerns back then about about studying overseas and about studying about some direction um so we made the decision that we'd get married so we got married in in the summer of uh, 1996 and we had one more year left of university that final year was basically just save some money pass Rocks for jocks, what is geology 100? And I actually failed, failed it. I showed up to the wrong, wrote the exam on the wrong paper. But it was just wind down. We we're attending Sheikhtal's classes, get ready to go overseas in terms of grammar and fix studies and so on. Then um, at that time, there was actually a scholarship that was being run by Sheikh Noor Keller and his wife, uh, Sheikh Al Sahel, with. Um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and a couple of other people. They had, they, they had this project to fund some students overseas. So having been in, you know, been studying with Sheikh Tal for a year and a half, and you know, when we when we met them um, for a dean intensive at the end of 1996 here in Canada, which we we hosted, we used sort of our activist skills to hold a dean intensive. That dean intensive, Sheikh Noor Keller was there as well, and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Sheikh Noor's wife. Um, and others, um, Sheikh Abdullah Al Qadi. So we we met with them, etc. And Sheikh Talal and Hussad uh, Nazim sort of recommended me for the scholarship. But it was only a partial stage. You had to fund your your first year. But thankfully, we had some money because my friends got the word out that look, these guys are broke. We got married in the summer. I still had one year left of university. So without stating it on anything, everyone gave us cash gifts. So we had 600 people there for the wedding. We made like six, 7,000 net on the wedding. So alhamdulillah, um, we, we financed the first year in Damascus largely on the money from, from getting married. And we decided to go overseas. Um, and upon finishing the final year of university, and then having to stay in the summer, because I'd failed rocks for jocks, um, I had to take it over in the, in the summer before leaving. Um, in August 97, Shireen and I, we, we went to Damascus. So that's how we 
we found ourselves in in, in Damascus. But but that wait was was very blessed because it gave opportunity to study a couple of years with you know, just under two years with Sheikh Talal. Had been attending halaqas with other teachers before that and st- had put a lot of effort into Arabic grammar. I'd, I'd grown up in Cairo six years, so I, I, I knew I had a, a background in Arabic. But it was it was it helped with a lot of maturation going through university. Well, or dragging myself through university was also useful. The skills l- learned from being active in the MSA, etc., were, were invaluable. Um, and it allowed making... Because you're always going to make mistakes in life, but making mistakes while at MSA were, were much easier mistakes than going making mistakes overseas and coming back, not doing anything. So that was very, very beneficial, Bifadlillah. Um, uh, May I, uh, may I ask God. how um, you and, and your wife both knew that you wanted to study and to study overseas? Well, I I knew I wanted to study from like from first year university. I've always been a bit of a nerd. My father is partially to blame because growing up, instilled this love of reading and studying and inquiry. Um, so I'd always knew I, that I wanted to do something, you know, educationally related. Um, so. But the direction stuff took took several years to figure out the direction in the university. But I knew I, once I knew that you know I was serious about Islam, I was clear I wanted to go and study where. So I ended up going to to, to Damascus. I guess, sorry, I guess what I'm asking yeah. is how did you find someone that had like a similar vision to you? By accident, actually, Usada Shiri and I have been working together at, at the MSA level. Although she was at the the what's called the Arendale campus, University of Toronto Mississauga, where the downtown campus. Also at, you know, we're sort of co-founders with some others, like Dr. Ike and others of MSA, uh, uh, Toronto MSAs United, also at the regional level. Um, we're co-editors of the MSA, of MSA Nationals, MSA Starters Guide, how to start and run an MSA. So we're, we're working together at every level. Um, I was the editor of the Muslim Voice. She was features editor. And um, we'd fought as well. She's always been very independent. So Dr. Ike and I redesigned her feature section. And we got, you know, we were the main editors. We got in big trouble with her because she said, you, you will not touch my section. So we, we met. and Dr. Iqbal was very grumpy. But he was scared of that. So she, she's always intimidated everybody in, just by, by her silence. And you can so take it or leave it. So, but I, I was actually not not at all thinking about getting married to her. I was engaged actually to somebody in the U in the U.S. who's intrigued by this thing about going overseas and studying. And um, someone from Waterloo, Ontario, tried to connect us. So someone tried to set us up. So I was actually engaged to get married to someone in the U.S. I was actually going to fly with Sheikh Abdul. They used to meet her parents, but then she called it off. The day she, this. This uh, this sister in the U.S. called it off. It was kind of devastating. I, I lived four months on cloud eleven, like way above cloud nine. Like I'd walk down the street, people who knew me would just start laughing because I was I wasn't there. I'd even meetings, I was kind of absent. I'd be staring at the clouds, kind of thing. I don't think I'd never seen this person. There's no social media, anything. I'd interacted with her on this multi-user dimension and heard about her. Um, but such is the power of imagination. So. The day it was called off, I went to the musalla. First time in like four months when I have lost this goofy grin on my face. This older graduate Arab student 
Brother Adil looked at me and said, Brother Faraz, what is happening? Why are you not smiling? So I said, you know that thing in the US, it, it ended. So he smiled. And he just, the, the power of certitude, he just said, Fihi khair, it's all good. And he recited the verses from Surah Al-Talaq that Whoever mindful of Allah, Allah will grant a way out. And he'll provide for them in ways they could not imagine. And it, he just said it with so much certitude, he didn't explain anything, it just resonated. So I walk down the stairs from the International Student Center. I'm walking up St. George Street. And this Palestinian sister, who was part of our MSA, but I didn't really know her. She stopped me and said, Brother Faraz, I want to tell you something. No salam even. I was a bit offended. She says, are you blind? And she's pointing at me. I'm thinking like, hey, don't point at me. She says, are you blind? Haven't you considered Sister Sheen for marriage? Honestly, mind your own business. Okay, jazakallah. Walk up. I went to the Robarts Library, ran into my friend Hussein Hamdani, lifelong friends, standing at these computer terminals. And he looked at me, he just shook his head first. Are you blind? Haven't you? And I didn't even told him that the thing in the US was called off. I was offended, like, don't give me a hard time. And I wanted, like, I had a lot of self pity. But he said exactly the same thing. Haven't you considered Shireen for marriage? I was like, I left those terminals and went into the basement of U of T. There's this science lab and there's these private terminals there. Um, so I went there just to, just to be on my own. And I get an email from, from Kansas City, the sister that I worked with on MSA National, but had never met. Subject line was, are you blind? Question mark. That's exactly the same thing. I was like, oh my God. So I was a bit disturbed, whatever. So I just headed home. Normally, I'd head home with my friends, go late. Headed home. My mother was sitting on, we had like a, a takht. It was like a, like a, like an expanded sofa. Like this, this sitting thing. She's cutting vegetables. She looks at me. Doesn't give salams either. Says, are you blind? And she's cutting. I'm thinking, you're going to chop off your fingers. Come to think of anything. So I knew what she's going to say. Said, Haven't you considered Sister Sheen for me? So, alhamdulillah, some things are destined to be. But, so, we started talking and, you know, we'd been, we knew each other well because we'd been involved in many projects together. And she knew what I wanted to, what, what my goal was and, and so on. She was, she had similar aspirations, but she didn't have like an execution path for them. So, you know, many things happened, um, improbably, because we got the parents to agree on the wedding date without them actually meeting, but they agreed to it. But I was convinced, if they met me, they'd say, what a loser, still has a year left of university, has no money, has no career, has no plans, has nothing, no way. And I knew my parents and her parents just would not get along, because they're very ethnic. And So, alhamdulillah, so we, we went in 97, um, age 23, to Damascus, alhamdulillah. And the choice of Damascus was largely due to the sort of the range of influence of the teachers. And at that time, um, on the, the, the on this scholarship, it's one place where it was feasible to study and there was access, a lot of access to teachers, traditional scholars and so on, was Damascus. And alhamdulillah. And that's one of the lessons I learned from, from that experience is just the benefit of being connected to teachers, of consulting before acting. Um, and in that, one of the people who was really influential, once I decided to go overseas and study, once a month I would call Sheikh Nuh and, and his wife, uh, Sheikh Um Sahel. Of course, if I caught Sheikh Nuh, 
it would be a two-minute phone call. It would cost me a few dollars. If I had the fortune or misfortune of catching catching Um Sahel, it would be a sixty to hundred dollar phone call because she'd talk for an hour, an hour and a half. It was invaluable. Like I had pile of notes just from the conversations of themselves. Because she'd give life advice, whether you should take pots and pans, which yeah, I've never been one for practical things like that. Where you should stay in Damascus, what to watch out for, whose company to keep, this, that, like all practical matters. Think you know, it was really it was very beneficial. She gave a lot of time, gave invaluable advice, talked extensively with Sheikh Talal, who gave sorry, I still have those notes, I have fifteen pages. He hosted a dinner a few weeks before I traveled. And the dinner finished at like ten thirty, people headed out, and the Sheikh Talal dropped me off at my parents' house close to three in the morning. And I was just busy taking notes. He gave, well, in the rare time Sheikh Talal just opened up fully and gave advice like by the bucket load. Invalid. Once in a while, I still used to look at that. Um, so that's where we you know, went overseas then uh, to study. And alhamdulillah, things were very clear there in terms of, you know, because of this advice, they connected me with people over there, Sheikh Jihad Brown, others who had been studying for a number of years, Imam Zaid Shakir, whom also we'd, in our activist days, we'd, we used to listen to his cassette tapes from, um, from New Haven, Connecticut. He had... This thing on the 40 no, we and so on. And really liked the fact that he was this activist. And those days he was a little, a lot more angry than he is now. But very balanced, very positive, and always concerned about knowledge. This is before he went overseas to study. So there's a bit of a legend. The activist who disappeared, Imam Zayd Shakir. When he went to the Dean Intensive, we actually stayed in his masjid. And people were talking about Imam Zayd as if he's just there, just around the corner, he'll be there any moment. But he'd been away for two years. So he connected with people like that, Imam Zaid and others, and you know, and some of the local scholars there. So they helped set up the the classes and so on while in Damascus. And my wife, you know, Salashin Ahmed, she also studied while we we're there. Who were some of the teachers you studied with in Syria, Jordan, and Pakistan, and what did you learn from them? So, in Damascus, um, some of the teachers were more most influential. Were some of the younger teachers I, I studied with. One of the things I'm the managed to learn is if you're going to do anything, try to take the best means for it. Um, and one of the best means in terms of teachers find people of, or the most worthy of studying from intellectual in terms of their knowledge, but also have exemplary character. That's one of the great things, and these are lifelong friendships. Alhamdulillah. Um, two of my main teachers from my first years, um, they are now part of the Seekers Guidance staff. Sheikh Mu'min Al Annan, who's leading our Seekers Arabic program, and Sheikh Muhammad Qailish, both of whom were a few years older than me, but they're of the, of the top young scholars of Damascus at that time, everyone would say, who are the young upcoming scholars? Everyone would point to a handful of people amongst them these. And both of them are, you know, Sheikh Muhammad Qailish teaches through Seekers Guidance Arabiyah. And a third person who was very influential, I never studied with him, but to hang around in the same circle is very impressive. Uh, distinguished academic now, Dr. Isam Ido, who just, the benefit of keeping good company, within a few months of being in Damascus, so Sheikh Muhammad Qaydash and Sheikh Mu'min lived in the same Beit Arabi, in this Arab home. Sheikh uh, Dr. Isam lived in this little add-on um, room that was built between the two floors. As wooden planks, I used to be always scared to step inside. I said, what if it collapses? But I thought we sort of have this intellectual thing. But I said, he lives there. So it's not collapsed yet. And it looks it's been there for decades, but it's been for decades. Now is the time for it to fall. So you usually talk to him from the door. 
I kind of figured even or just one step inside. But one day he, I was going up to study with Sheikh Mu'min. He asked me, "How many hours a day do you study?" You know, they, they say a, a, an intelligent person doesn't make a fool of themselves. I didn't answer the question. And he said, "Someone who doesn't study ten hours a day is only metaphorically speaking a student of knowledge." And I'd observe. That's what I observed from from Sheikh Isam. That's what I observed from Sheikh Muhammad Qailish, from Sheikh Mu'min. These are younger scholars that I connected with, and through them and, and Sheikh Jihad, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him, um, connected with some of the older scholars in Damascus, like Sheikh Adib Kallas and Sheikh Abdurazaq al-Halabi, to, to begin attending their, their classes. And the benefit of the, the younger scholars was that you could relate to them, you could hang out with them, you could ask your questions, you could make a fool of yourself and... You know, you'd have, um, you could have that space with the older scholars. There's, there's wisdom, their, their depth, their own state. Um, so that was that was deeply influential. But one of the things that really resonated about Damascus, especially old Damascus, and I lived in one of the old areas, Medan, was something I talked. At, we had a molid with the Syrian community a couple of years ago here in Toronto was the impact of the scholars and the knowledge and the circles of knowledge on the common person, right? That during Hajj season, for example, when the Hujjaj come back, like, the grocery store owner would be like, because the grocery store owner in my neighborhood ended up being the father-in-law of Sheikh, my teacher, Sheikh Mu'min, as I discovered years later. He'd be like, have you visited Sheikh, Sheikh Sadiq Habannaka yet? He came back last night from, from Hajj, Right? It would be like this, this deep religious culture. There's just a given that doesn't matter who you are, you attend one circle of knowledge and one circle of dhikr on a weekly basis. That's just a given. And the, 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 you know, the, the, old, the, established, the old parts of, the, of traditional Damascus was a given. Those who couldn't, they would feel required to apologize about it. So, wallah, dunya has taken us over. We used to attend with so-and-so. We only go there once in a while now. But that would be like, going once in a while was their definition of slacking off. Um, connection with Qur'an. Like the girl, you know, this guy, he didn't even have a grocery store. It was just like a little shack where he kept just like odds and ends. He said, one asked me one day, like we're sitting just drinking this herbal tea. And he said, how much Qur'an do you read in a day? And didn't answer the question. He said, you know, the Mashaikh told us that if you don't read the Quran twice, finish the Quran twice a month, means you're not serious about your relationship with Allah. It's like, it's a common guy, like, you know, that doesn't even have like a, a store or work there, he just has a little shack and will be sitting all day on a, on like a, on a stool. Um, so that, that was very impactful. And, or the akhlaq, or the respect for students of knowledge, etc. That was deeply, deeply um, impactful. That you could see akhlaq, Manifest in people's dealings, neighbors sending sending food, saying, where does so-and-so? They say, why? Because we, we bought 20 kilos of rice for him. Why do you buy rice for him? So, well, there's some for you as well. It's right over here. And we didn't actually like the rice because, you know, like brown folk, we don't like thick, chubby Arab rice. But, you know, because they're students of knowledge. It says, you know, on, you know, honoring the students of knowledge is wajib. That was really, really remarkable. Like, you know, the 
So that that, that was something that really resonated. Um, and so the, the time in Damascus especially, and then many things happened and there was instability in Syria. So we moved to, to Jordan. I'm, I'm a student of Sheikh North Keller's and one of the things was to be close to him. But there's also many learning opportunities there. So moved there and the same thing. There's the aspect of learning, but seeing that knowledge lived was one of the big, big things, both on the older scholars, but also some of the younger scholars who really exemplified that that was a big, big influence. And one of my advice for anyone who wants to pursue the path of knowledge is be really careful about the company you keep, right? That it makes a big, big difference. And one of the, both while in Toronto and then we went overseas, that was one of the big facilitators on that journey. There's many choices in life, etc., that finding that right company was a big, big influence. When moving to Jordan, there's time, there's a lot of, we were totally, for, for a while in 2001, Umar and I, our monthly budget was less than $200 a month, including rent. So I used to have one meal a day with Umar, with Ustaz Shireen. The other meal, I'd have it with a friend of mine who was living in the same neighborhood. He was totally broke, but he did some, you know, he did some knowledge, he did some research for Sheikh Noor Keller, and Sheikh Noor's wife would cook for him for dinner. So, Umar kind of, she's like, you know, self-fueling, uh, you know, so we, we would, I'd have dinner over there, and then there's four of us would have dinner. They'd say, Um Sahil, can we have some more food? Because there's four of us. And she'd be like, you're breaking my budget. Because they didn't have much funds, but Allah is they fed us for, for months and months till things got easier. So, but keeping that company, there's never a doubt that we do anything other than seek knowledge. Because the, the company we're keeping, we're all in the same state. Like we'd be have like a few. So should we buy w- one large shawarma and split it, or should we get two falafels? That would sort of be the conversations, right? Uh, alhamdulillah. Um, and but the biggest thing that really res- resonated with the teachers, even there, there's this Iraqi scholar Sheikh Akram Abdul Wahab, who I'm still in contact with. Just their 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 character, right? Like the, their their service. You know, Sheikh Akram. He was staying with some Western students. And so he was one of the head of the Council of Scholars of Mosul. By any definition, what we call a alama, a, a senior scholar. They were wondering amongst themselves, who washes the dishes? The after dinner dishes are always washed. But we don't see anybody. Someone said, maybe it's a miracle. Like, but Sheikh Akram would literally give the second salam after Isha, not even sit for, for the dhikr. He'd go back home. I, yeah, I, I stalked him. And he went and quickly did the dishes. I was just standing there observing. And went, closed his door, and started reading. So people thought, that, where is Sheikh Akram? No one knows because his door is closed. But he'd been doing that for weeks. right? Even though he was in his 60s and one of the most senior scholars alive. But but that aspect of seeing that knowledge lived. right? A couple of times I had back issues in Jordan. First person to visit would be Sheikh Akram. Even before my friends. right? Even though he's like... Old enough to be my grandfather at that time. But, so those things really resonated, um, alhamdulillah. And then, you know, st- I stayed in, in, in Amman t- till beginning of 2007 when we, when we decided or were, it was suggested to us to move to Pakistan to do some advanced research in, 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 Islam, in Islamic law and fiqh. And we spent six to seven months there. That was a difficult time. Uh, had health issues. It was, it was very insightful, but a lot of the sectarianism and the division there and some of the harshness, I found it difficult, but, there, but met some amazing scholars there as well who were a deep influence.
When did you come back and start Seekers? And why did you start an Islamic institute that is completely free? We made the choice to, to, to come back in 2007 to to North America. Um, and right around there, you, what, you met other teachers who were also just returning, some whom I'd been in contact with, like Sheikh Yahya Rodas and others. And ironically, one of the first advices that when I consulted Sheikh Nuh Keller um, was stay connected with Habib Omar and the students of Habib Omar. And I hadn't even seen Habib Omar at that time. And Sheikh Yahya, around the same time, had consulted Habib Omar and his advice was stay connected with Sheikh Nuh and the students of Sheikh Nuh. So we've been connected since, from around 2007, we started collaborating together, um, traveling together, etc., and some other, some other teachers. Um, at that time, Sheikh Yahya had, was with Zaytuna, but he was one of the first teachers who joined the Seekers team at that time. And then he was thinking of actually moving to Canada, but we said, you know, but, but it was better for him to stay in the U.S. So even before he established his, um, his project in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Al-Maqasid, uh, we'd, we'd been working together for years. Um, and, and the, the, you know, the, the basic concern being spreading beneficial knowledge and providing clear religious guidance. Those are the two areas. And from the get-go, one of the main things was that there is a need to establish institutions of, of learning, right? Institutions of, of learning that have a focus on knowledge and spreading clear religious guidance. Um, and and that's why, so it's a very natural partnership with, with Sheikh Yahya's Al-Maqasid, for example, and, and other groups as well. Um, in South Africa with Darul Turat al-Islami for a while we had a partnership with Al-Ghazali Center in Sydney, Australia which is a very fruitful partnership and, and others um, but one of the things that was of concern to us at that time for a number of people was this idea that there was a dangerous commercialization that we're seeing of religion people sort of and some of it was not commercial no one's not most people weren't really getting rich out of it but just that people were you know, needed some, somehow to survive. Um, so we, that's one of the things that really concerned us, a number of people. And one of the people who would keep annoying me about it, but friends annoy friends, was Sheikh uh, Abdul Karim Yahya. He says, Sheikh, Sheikh Faraz, this stuff needs to be free. I said, you must be dreaming. Like, how, like, how are you going to sustain it? So we got to figure out a way. I said, then it's your idea. He said, but you got to figure. I think, why do I have to do it? I'd complain to but, but alhamdulillah, you know, we consulted and so on. And, 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 you know, and when we looked at that, you know, the prophets never charged. And the institutions of, of Islamic knowledge historically never charged. And actually, if you look more broadly, the great educational institutions throughout history, even in the West, didn't charge. But how did they sustain themselves, Right. And, and the basic thing was that because people perceived value in them and there's people who supported them. And actually, that was actually probably a key to their material strength was the fact that by be, being a cause and people seeing the value. So around, you know, 2011, 2012, we decided to go to adopt what we call knowledge without barriers, making all the educational offerings completely free. The region impact became much much wider on that. Um, you know, when we started off in 2011, we were, ha- we were averaging about 
600 students per term for the online courses. In one term, it went from 600 students to 6,000 students um, without doing anything else differently. Um, and alhamdulillah, you know, I mean, sustainability is always a challenge, but, you know, um, but the sustainability was at a much higher level. Like we were able actually to expand and bring on more teachers and, and more staff and provide a wider range of services. So it's not necessarily the only way to offer it. Islamically, there's nothing wrong with charging for knowledge, etc. As long as the intention is, is sincerely for the sake of Allah and to be of benefit to people. But also one has to be careful without, with, without it affecting priorities and without it shifting needs, right? And one has to be, as a community, we have to be very careful about avoiding the corporatization of Islamic knowledge or actually the corporatization of community services. That's a problem when it comes to Islamic knowledge, but it's also affect, there's a corporatization of our community. If you look at, sometimes it's easy for us to talk about the uncles and the masajid and stuff, but our community was built through volunteers, but but that's that's a danger that we have to be wary of. That yes, we need to build institutions, and institutions required people working on them and dedicating themselves to it. But to approach it with corporate frameworks is very very damaging, because um, it affects priorities. It also affects the ethos within the organizations. People treating each other, you know. And there's a lot of, and you know, you know, to say that the corporate world is like a jungle is actually zulm to to the animals in the jungle. Because animals in the jungle have some some ethics, and much of the corporate world doesn't. You talked about this a bit, but um, with all these sacrifices comes a lot of financial sacrifice. Um, not well, just um, you know, living on limited funds and, and things like that. How did you um, and Omar kind of uh, maintain your trust in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala during those? I think we we had. Actually, when we got we got married in, in very dramatic circumstances, I don't believe in half-hearted measures. So actually, our marriage contract, which thankfully we lost, because it would have major. Fa- actually, we lost. So actually, we forgot what the mahr was. The mahr was a very complicated formula. My wife's very practical. She said, "Look, get me a Moulinex, which is like a food blender, and it's and the mahr is cleared." I said, "Let's put that in writing." And I said, "What model do you want?" And she said, "It was like a Moulinex 165." I got like. 185 just to like cover extra it was a big discount on the mahar but from the beginning in our marriage partner we had this thing that our primary commitment in life is to is to is to serve is to see the pleasure of Allah by serving the deen through through seeking and spreading knowledge if at any time either one of us is an impediment in any way for the other you know we have we fully give the other the right of divorce in that with no questions asked. So that's sort of, I think she's forgotten that. You thought about all of this in your 20s? Yeah, yeah no, no. No, we were, de- de- we were quite serious. And part of the benefit was keeping good company, right? We also read this book called Return of the Pharaoh by Zainab al-Ghazali. I don't recommend that approach, and I, don't, I certainly don't agree with her political views, but she, her, she and her husband had made this commitment. She suffered in jail for her beliefs and so on. So we were like, doesn't matter what happened. So it was never... And finding the light, right life partner, which is a gift from the Egyptian brother, I guess, or a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it was never in question. That, that didn't matter. And alhamdulillah, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides this, the guarantee from the Prophet mentioned there's three people whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care to provide for. One is someone who marries to, uh, to uh, seeking dignity. 
And the other one is, is a seeker of knowledge until they return. And another one is someone who's striving the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we've seen that. Alhamdulillah, we've never had... Like, it's, it's always been... And it, is, it also has to be practical. There's few people who are dying of starvation in life. Even if someone's homeless, they're, they're, the very fact that they're homeless means they're alive. So something must be happening. Right? So I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of people. If you can, take some risks in life. Right? That live... You know, one of the great poets of the spiritual tradition in Islam, he said, there's no life in this life for one who lives in mere sobriety. One who does not dry, one who does not die drunk in passion missed out on the point of it all. Of course, he doesn't mean drinking like alcohol, but like like having some clear sense of purpose, right? So um, so that always resonated, right? This idea that, as another poet said, that and on their own self let cry one who wasted their life. Who has of this no share nor portion. Right? So so that's the what you know in, in closing, since we're here at you know the Maghrib time, that that's like do something meaningful. A lot of people live miserably, right? I was the other day I was with two friends, we we're at this wedding, we we're two friends. Both delightfully broke. I was looking around, and both broke. Like, mashallah, like they don't have a house. They're both in debt. They don't. But I was looking around. There's all these successful professionals. And this guy has this and this. And these are two deeply content people. And their whole life is like, like I asked one of them, how are things going? Said, where, do, where do you want me to begin? Because I know, like everything that could be disastrous is disastrous in their life. And in their health, and in this, and that, and you know, no shortage of drama and dramatics, but deeply content. Why? Because they're doing something meaningful in their life, and that doesn't, of course, just mean going off the beaten path. But even in the career choices one makes and the life choices one makes, to consider what will be pleasing to Allah, what will be of genuine benefits to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's creation, and Allah you know, facilitates different doors for different people. But um, but that. You know that, that that's you know one thing that I, I wanted to close with. Bismillah ta'ala. Thank you for your time. And this is a wonderful this is a wonderful podcast initiative. I I, I checked out the first uh, you know the the the, you know, the the first of the episodes and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant you consistency in this and make it really beneficial. Barakallahu ta'ala fiqum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi عليك الله يا حمد نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خلق من نور ربه يا من سمى